Plans for Senelaga post-2019. It also makes sense, given its locality, to think about it perhaps being some sort of forward mounting base. Could it be war or peace with North Korea? And the Royal Marines give three cheers for Prince Philip. The head of the army says he'd like Britain to keep hold of the Senelaga training area in Germany for use as a possible forward mounting base. The army's permanent presence in the country is due to end in 2019, but now that British troops are working so closely with NATO forces to deter possible Russian aggression, General Sir Nick Carter reckons it would be good to keep hold of it. Here he is talking to Rob Olver. We are increasingly discovering, of course, as armies get smaller, that. Um, if we can get the whole to add up to the sum of the parts and integrate other armies into our own army, then that's going to be a very effective way of A, demonstrating alliance cohesion, which is our centre of gravity, but also about making us all militarily more effective. So the sort of stuff you've seen happening is perhaps what's going on over my shoulder at the moment, where you've got a Leopard 2 alongside a Challenger 2, and we're just checking that we're able to do emergency refuelling between the two platforms, um, and that the NATO STANAG process, which was enshrined in NATO policy all those years ago, is, is up to scratch. Uh, and of course we're discovering that a lot of it is. We're learning a lot of the sort of old lessons that we perhaps had forgotten from the past, um, and that level of interoperability I think is proving to be very impressive. The aim of quite a number of the uh, troops in 20th Armoured Infantry Brigade is to take part in this process of um, reassuring uh, NATO allies in the East, acting as a, as a form of deterrent. I mean, how well is that going? Um, well, I was in Estonia about um, three weeks ago, um, and again, it's impressive to see what they've achieved. That's our first deployment there. They were really only on the ground properly from sort of April onwards. Um, but we now see a British battle group with a, a French company group inside it, um, and other nations involved as well, it's slightly smaller scale, and of course us interoperating with the Estonians. Uh, and I think it's impressive. Uh, and you know, when you saw the effect it's had on the Estonian population and of course on their military, um, it's rather gratifying. You're talking about using bases in Germany as mounting bases for reinforcing troops in, in Eastern Europe, for example, perhaps uh, the British-led battle group in Estonia. What, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, well, I think I would say up front, so that we don't create any sort of false rumours, the plain fact is that 20 Brigade, as a brigade, is going to move back to the UK in 2019. And there's some very impressive um, infrastructure being assembled at the moment. There's a lot of building work going on on Salisbury Plain. And my expectation is that everything will be ready for the return of the brigade's units in that time frame. But that said, um, we're also conscious that we have a tremendous facility here um, at Senelaga and that we have a very close relationship with uh, the German population of Paderborn and Senelaga. And of course we have close working relationships with the German brigade that's based at Augustdorf. So from our perspective, uh, it makes sense to think about this being a training area into the future. Um, it also makes sense, given its locality, to think about it perhaps being some sort of forward mounting base that can help us if we need to carry on the deployment in Estonia or Poland or indeed exercise in Europe more broadly. So it's a place then where it, which could act as a kind of launch pad, I suppose, if needed. Well, I think that's part of it, but it's also about, you know, there are excellent training facilities um, and we would like to continue to avail ourselves of excellent training facilities. So no decisions have been made yet, but we're all looking at what the possibilities might be 
um, and it could be a mounting base, it could be something for interoperability, it could be a training base for whomever. There have been discussions with, with the Germans about much, a much closer relationship with the Bundeswehr, British Army and the Bundeswehr, and that this might indeed involve, as you mentioned there, the, the training facility here in Senelage as a, a joint facility. Is that something that's being explored quite seriously? Well, we're examining all sorts of um, um, ideas at the moment with, uh, with the German army. And my opposite number and I, General Vulmer, have talked about um, how we can build on some of the joint capability we have with our joint engineer regiment, which is currently located in Minden. And you'll know that does the amphibious engineering, the wide wet gap crossing capability, as we call it. And we're looking to see how we can invest in that more. But we're also looking to see whether there are other things that we can do of those sorts of quite special capabilities that if done collectively could be a rather efficient way of doing these things. And um, the Germans are a great partner and um, if we can do it with them that's a tremendous way to look at it. That was the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Nick Carter there. Well, I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, as well as Christopher Lee, our Defence Analyst. Hello to both of you. Professor Clark, what do you make of what the General was saying there about Senelaga? Well, it's very interesting because uh, at a practical level, everything he said was entirely reasonable. You would expect him to think that. And, and he's obviously got an eye to uh, interoperational interoper interoperability for the future. Um, and that's very good. What's interesting is that Nick Carter is a politically very savvy general and he was saying, well, we haven't made any decisions yet, we're just thinking about it. Well, I'm sure he wouldn't be thinking about it in public unless he'd already talked to the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, about it. Mm. He's far too savvy to, as it were, try to ambush uh, a politician into a commitment that hasn't yet been made. So, so you I could take that perhaps as confirmation, really, but without actually signing on the dotted line and admitting it? Well, I think it may not be confirmation, but it certainly, it certainly reflects the fact that it is officially now being thought about, not just in the army, but in the MOD. Otherwise, I'm sure he wouldn't have said it. Mm. Christopher, what do you think? If you go back 40 years, this is what you've got. Uh, it was the American idea under uh, Defence Secretary Brown. He said, uh, very simple, we can move a brigade, let's say, which is we're talking here, say 20 brigade, we can move them from UK or Fort Hood and 36 hours later we've got them in Germany. What we can't move is all the gear. Mm. You can't move the armoured division, you can't move the, the support, the, the logistics, the whole thing. So you forward base them, which is exactly this. And the idea of um, um, uh, the weaknesses in that was right at the beginning. Yes, it's very good. So you've got a tank, a Leopard 2, Chief 3, and you're going to fuel each other, make sure you've got the right Bowsers and the right link up, etc. That's all right if the same guy is agreeing to do it if they're not being deployed elsewhere to look up another part of their own army, their own brigade or, or, or whatever. But this is, this is good mm. thinking. It would have worked before. And by there's just one small thing, the idea of having interoperability and joint exercises. I thought that's what you did when you were deployed in, in, uh, in, in uh, Europe and in Germany, mm. in post-war Britain. Mm. Etc. Professor Michael Clark, uh, this idea then of the forward mounting base, what exactly would be left in Germany then? Well, uh, I think only base facilities um, and, as Christopher said, I mean, refuelling and that sort of thing, logistics. There wouldn't be uh, troops there. I'm not sure how much equipment might be there. Um, That's what I was getting down to, how much equipment could be left there. Well, I think, I mean, 20 Brigade is due to come home, um, but the fact is that we can get the heavy armour to Senelaga pretty quickly in the case of a crisis. And remember, a crisis isn't going to come right out of the blue, so there'll be some sort of build-up period. But I think it is important that there would be a holding area um, that would give access 
access to, as General Carter said, you know, Estonia or Poland or, he said, anywhere else in Europe. What we really mean is northwestern Europe because that still is the likely area of operations. If there were some sort of military crisis that required a military response in Europe, we'd be doing something in north northwestern Europe and other forces, German and American, would be central and southern Europe. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. Still to come, should generals all go back to university and study for PhDs and all the prince's men? It is remarkable how closely his affinity is to not only the services, but as we saw today with the whole core family, veterans, cadets, band service and general service. The biggest risk to NATO is risk. That's the Alliance's latest strategic thinking. So what does NATO mean by this and what's so different now? Because after all, the reason for NATO is the risk of war. Um, what's it all about, Christopher? Well, if you think of the basic thing is transparency and risk. So if you know what the other side or somebody else is doing, you reduce the risk, don't you? Now, at a recent meeting a couple of weeks ago with the Russians and NATO in, in, in Brussels, they said we we ought to stick to the rules, and there are rules under something called the Vienna Papers, like that. We stick to the rules. You tell us what you're going to be doing in future. You tell me on what side you're going to do. So if you're going to have an exercise, how many men are going to take part in, etc. That's transparent. Therefore, there is less risk. I'm likely to miscalculate what your intentions are going to be. I can see what your capability is, but I need to know what your intentions. Now, if you if you escalate that up. Just say every time something goes on, you get a crisis somewhere in Georgia or whatever. We therefore know from you what the risk of this building up into something which is unacceptable becomes. Professor Michael Clark, um, it sounds pretty obvious. Does it work in practice? Because as I understand it, there's already doubts as to how transparent the talks are when you talk about future exercises, for example, that Russia are planning to undertake. Yes. I mean, the, the confidence-building measures that we're talking about were all developed in the 1970s and 1980s up to the uh, the OSCE process. And they were they were pretty good. But remember, they were devised for the Cold War. And after the Cold War, because the, the, the structure of Europe was different and because the Warsaw Pact was dissolved, it just didn't seem to fit so well. So using the, as it were, the old rules, uh, quite a lot can be concealed underneath those old rules. But the principle of CBMs, confidence-building measures, is a very good one. And remember that the Russians have withdraw withdrawn from the various uh, consultation measures that are, have been in place. They still exist, but they've really not engaged in those consultation procedures. And even though they were pretty low level, it's better that they do than that they don't. And having those procedures is a sort of signal of the, fa of the fact that both sides want to be predictable. They don't want to create crises out of accidental mis misperceptions. Mm, it all sounds very sensible, Christopher. But is NATO thinking, is strategic thinking? changing then? And what it's doing is going back and saying, listen, well, you had a good system here, as Mike says. It, get, it developed from the Helsinki process in 1975, which was then signed. But you start thinking where we are now. We're, we're, we have great suspicions about the Russians. The Russians only come, although there have been five meetings at NATO, they're only coming back into mm. this whole consultative uh, process. We have Ukraine going on. We have more insurgencies into South Georgia. And what we then have is a suspicion. So with modern near-Earth observations and, and sort of uh, intelligence 
intelligence gathering, we can say you've got a hundred thousand guys there because we can count all the army, army you've got there and everything that supports it. And the Russians say, no, we haven't. You therefore have raised the risk because one side doesn't believe the mm. other. Uh, obviously, the biggest risk then is the misunderstanding if the transparency isn't working. And we, we see uh, incursions in airspaces uh, around the Baltics as a potential risk from the air. But what about when you bring North Korea into the equation, Michael Clark? Yes, uh, I mean, this really is the, the problem. The North Koreans um, have got the, the now Hwasong-14 missile, which is now looks to be intercontinental, and therefore it will reach the United States, some or all of it, uh, eventually. And what everyone worries about is sheer miscalculation, certainly on the part of Russia, the United States, China, and North Korea. I mean, in principle, the North Koreans say only what we say about nuclear weapons, mm. which is that they're there to guarantee their independence. They're there to guarantee they won't be attacked. That's what we say. The difference is that we think that we are predictable and they are not. We think that we have checks and balances in our system to prevent a madman doing something. We think that they have not. Um, that's the, the the problem, not the principle that they base their nuclear deterrence on, actually, but the fact that we just don't think that they play, they will play the game in the way that we think we play the game. Mm, well, let's talk more now about North Korea. And we're trying to convey to the North Koreans, we are not your enemy, we're not your threat, but you are presenting an unacceptable threat to us and we have to respond. Well, that is the US Secretary of State Rex Tillerson reacting to Pyongyang's latest missile test you were talking about there, Michael Clark. Um, the US has retaliated by firing its own intercontinental missile. But could events be about to take a different turn? There are rumours of the North Koreans developing a missile-carrying submarine. Um, what do you make of that? They certainly intend to, that's for sure. I mean, they, they, they want to have a triad, so they want to have air-delivered, de air ground-based and submarine-delivered weapons. They're some way away from it. We know they've tested the mechanisms for, as it were, launching the missile on a column of compressed air, which is the way uh, Trident works and, and uh, ballistic missile launches from sea always work. They're trying that. They're developing that technology. They're quite a long way away from having anything operational, mm. but they're a, they're a very inventive uh, country. They will do it eventually if they keep at it. Yeah. Yes, you say, you say they're a long way from having anything operational. Do they have a deep water harbour? Uh, not deep enough for what they want. Mm. Um, the Americans, uh, Christopher Lee, um, perhaps, perhaps loose talk by the American Senator Lindsey Graham. He's, he's to the right of centre. Let's put it that way, a minimum. He he will believe anything that uh, Donald Trump sends. So he's quoting Donald him. Trump saying that he Trump says, said to him... If there is, if they continue to try and hit America with a missile then there will be a war. That's what he says the, the president told him, and he said they believe it, and the Chinese ought to believe it. Um, this idea, which is also coming through, uh, coming through Lindsey Graham, somebody's briefed him on this, is that last May, uh, a submarine deployed as if on exercise to launch a missile. Now, he hasn't got a missile on board, doesn't even have the mm. mechanism, but it was deployed. It was where it was deployed, into the into the Pacific. So when we may sit there and watch the pictures and say, right, well, this is a, a, a launch you know, of a, a Haesong 14 and it's going off from North Korea, and can it hit Alaska? Yeah. Can it hit uh, San Diego? Yes, yes. If you move uh, a submarine down, you don't have to fire it from North Korea, mm. and you don't have to do very very much, and, ve and it's, it's very well protected. You don't need, for example, your idea of, 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 a, of a port. Uh, where does the Royal Navy fire its missiles from? 
into uh, into the Middle East. Well, obviously from the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm. So let's put it in, as Mike says, is they've got to have airborne, they've got to have a seaborne, and eventually they will have their strategic strategic forces. M- Michael Clark, obviously an increase in missile tests by North Korea. What do you think their real intentions are? I think it's to show the world that they matter. That's one part of uh, Kim Jong-un's strategy. But also, they, they, I think they feel that with the United States in a, in, in a sort of chaotic phase, it was in a, they thought it was a weak phase under Obama, it's a chaotic phase under Trump. I think that they feel that this is their moment. This is their moment to make the biggest advances. Uh, while In order to pre- achieve what exactly? To, to achieve capability. They want to have the basic capability. When they can say, we can hit America with a nuclear weapon they will, for whatever reason, they will feel safer. They will feel that they can't then be treated like Saddam Hussein or Colonel Gaddafi or any of those regimes that have been effectively removed using American power in the lead. That's what they want. That's the fundamental requirement. So not an offensive, but a defensive move, they would see it as. I think fundamentally it is defensive. But there is not, there's an offensive unpredictability about North Korea, uh, which makes the rest of us very nervous. And it makes the Chinese at least as nervous as us. Let's, L- let's listen, we go out on the front page, we make this guy look a fool. He ain't a fool nor the four families that are keeping Korea in, in one position. They looked what happened to Pakistan when Pakistan didn't have a nuclear capability. They got a nuclear capability, suddenly get the respect. Mm. Look what happens on Monday. Watch out for Monday. There's the, reg- the annual regional forum meets in the Philippines on Monday. It includes 27 nations. It will include Mr. Tillerson from the United States, but includes the North Koreans who will be at that meeting. And the item three on the agenda at the moment is North Korea's missile capability. Mm. That's that's quite something. That's the first time they've actually got that close to talk about it openly. And that gives the North Koreans part of the respect they want that people take them seriously to discuss what they're doing. Uh, Michael Clark mentioned something about uh, the North Koreans seeing an opportunity of what's going on over in Washington, the instability that they may perceive as, as an, a moment for them to make, to bolster their, their position in the world. What do you make, Christopher, of John Kelly as the new chief of staff, General John Kelly? Well, the, whole, the, the White House is, is, is a, a proper operational military room, though, isn't it? You've got John Kelly there now as the chief of staff. You've got Jim Mattis as the uh, general defence. Um, you've got H.R. McMaster, who's the national security director. Think also about Nikki Hadley, who thinks the same way as they do, who, who is the representative at the United Nations. This perhaps, perhaps, is the opportunity for the White House to regular up. As, uh, as Mattis calls it, to regular up, to get real, and to say, right, the, the first six months were chaos. We can now settle down to being a regular, as soon as we can get the guy off tweeting first thing in the morning. But I seem to remember that uh, uh, some other American presidents have been exactly the same. They've been an absolute mess. This guy makes a noise about being a mess. But this is the opportunity. Watch it now. The army is in command. Well then, do generals who take time out to study for a PhD make for better military commanders? It's something the Americans have thought for a while with many of their high-achieving officers hitting the books to improve their critical and creative thinking. The former Afghanistan commander, General David Petraeus, and the US National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, have both done so. Elizabeth Braw is Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and has written about this for the FT. Elizabeth, good to talk to you today. Are British officers doing enough? academic study and if so why not 
Well, they certainly do a lot of academic study before becoming officers, and, and it's um, uh, to the credit of, of the UK Armed Forces that their officers uh, come well prepared from, from the best universities. But I think the difference between uh, the UK and, and the US is that the Americans have taken an active interest in furthering academic studies, so at the PhD level among their officers, after they've become uh, serving and commanding officers. And, and so um, essentially the Americans uh, put their highest or top achieving officers <laughs> back, at, uh, back to university studies to make mm. them even better. And are there benefits? Because presumably they're a bit of a loss while they're studying. That's right. Yeah, you lose them for several years, and especially if, if uh, as is the case in in the U.S., with uh, you, you mentioned Petraeus and McMaster, and there are also two new pilot programs for the Army and the Marine Corps. Um, you lose your your best officers for for several years, so it is a temporary loss. But um, as the Marine Corps said when it uh, when it uh, announced this program earlier this year, it says it wants to create a cadre of high-caliber officers with doctorate-level credentials to serve as strategists in key billets. So that means that not only will the the idea is that these officers will not only serve as, as uh, be useful to the Marine Corps, but in fact to the entire strategy mm. of the United States. And are there any examples of how strategy has been, military strategy has been improved as a result of study? Well, I, I think you could definitely say Afghanistan, where um, uh, General Petraeus put his uh, doctoral thesis about Vietnam uh, to good use in, in planning the, the strategy for, for Afghanistan. Mm. Professor Michael Clark, do you think Britain's top brass have done enough academic study? No, they haven't done much. Um, I mean, that's not to say they're not some extremely bright people, but it's not part of our career structure. Uh, as we say, that if somebody goes off to do a PhD for two to three years at, say, Oxbridge, um, then their careers will tend to suffer uh, because they've been out of it when other other people have been getting um, operational uh, uh, experience. So we do have some uh, uh, very academically minded people, but I can't think of a, mm. any of our chiefs who have formal doctorates that they acquired 10 or 15 years ago. Um, Nick Horton, the previous CDS, uh, was very, very well read, and Stu Peach, as our present CDS, I mean, he was in charge of academic studies in the Air Force, and he's very, very, uh, mm. he's very academically minded. But I don't think either of them have ever done a formal course. Yes, Christopher Lee, um, Elizabeth was saying that um, the Afghanistan strategy has been helped or improved by academic study. Um, looking at the situation today in Afghanistan, what do people need to study to get out of that? Well, they need to study a bit more, don't they? Because we're in the absolute clag. Um, <laughs> let me tell you, we have three major um, uh, deployments operations. Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria. Each one has proved to be a mess and I don't want, know what the academic answer to it but certainly we might start at the beginning is thinking about the forward political thinking followed by strategic thinking. We've, not, we've done neither. Elizabeth, who in your opinion has done all of this well? Well, the Americans certainly have, and I think that the point is that uh, military leaders should not only be asked to essentially arrange the boots on the ground, they should also be consulted uh, at a higher level. Should, should we be sending uh, boots uh, on the ground? Should we be uh, involved in this particular mission? And uh, so essentially uh, allowing them to provide the sort of advice that civilians provide today without really having a lot of knowledge about how operations actually work. Uh, 
Christopher, um, if we were to look at today's British military, who would you send to, to do a PhD and um, what do you think they should be studying exactly? I think I might send the, the present CGS not necessarily to do a PhD but to teach rather a lot of people quite a lot which he is quite capable of doing. But let me just make the link between the academic. Yeah? One of the best academics, and he won't mind me saying so, is Mike Clark. He went and... Oh, here we you, go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be saying that if you weren't there, Michael. This is true. This is absolutely true. I just want a free copy of the book. No, listen, listen. He's let, let, book let, of hang on, hang on. Let's put it, let's put it this way. Uh, Mike Clark and he won't mind me saying so, when before he was at King's as a, as a professor, he then went to the RUSI and changed that place into very much a research-based sort of uh, uh, setup. But there was something else. As that director, director general, he went over to see the prime minister and prime minister uh, to give him advice, along with some others, on what they should do about Iraq. Hmm. Tony Blair took notice, no notice of them. I don't think it's the PhD that you carry with you. Um, it has got to be something more persuasive. All right, Michael, I'll put you on the spot. Who would you like to get your hands on and teach them a thing or two then? Oh, well, I think it, you've got to identify people at the early part of their careers, the, the early to mid part. So you're looking really at colonels, one-star brigadiers. That's the level at which you can say this person is going to make a difference in the forces, that level of rank. And then you've got to be prepared to take them out of the system for, say, two years to give them a, a, a much th more thorough historical grounding so that in future operations there's not just a sense of the history, but also a sense of the cultural affinity required. And that's the problem. Too many officers, and we've all met them, you know, they, they go on a visit to Iraq or Afghanistan, they come back and say, we've nearly cracked it, we've nearly cracked it, one more push. And you know, you know, as an academic, you know, one more push won't crack it. Hmm. That can-do attitude sometimes gets in the way of real understanding. For that, you've got to be able to sit back for a couple of years and spend some time really getting to the bottom of a couple of issues, a couple of big issues that you think are interesting. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Elizabeth Broad, Thank you for your time today. The Duke of Edinburgh chose to spend time with the Royal Marines for his last official royal engagement. Tim Cooper was there. Through the years, Prince Philip has had a close association with the Royal Marines, so it was fitting that he chose as his final solo engagement to spend time with them once more. Pomp and music to the end as rain lashed the courtyard of Buckingham Palace. The Prince in particular spending time talking to Marines who've taken part in the 1664 Global Challenge, raising money for the Royal Marines charity. Brigadier Richard Spencer is Deputy Commandant General of the Royal Marines. An Admiral of the Fleet, Captain General of the Royal Marines, Colonel-in-Chief of the Grenadier Guards and so on and so on. Uh, it is remarkable uh, how closely his affini affinity is to not only the services, but as we saw today with the whole core family, veterans, cadets, band service and general service. The Prince isn't retiring, say the palace. He may well accompany Her Majesty the Queen in the future. And who knows, that may see him once more spending time with our serving military personnel. That was Tim Cooper there. Uh, Christopher, or should I address you as the BBC did yesterday, the Duke of Edinburgh's friend? I don't think he'd say so. Mm. <laughs> well, he missed spending time with the military. Uh, I, yes, I mean, he's not spending a huge amount of time. I mean, he's, he's, I think it's 55, 56 uh, organisations where he's an air marshal, a, a colonel of, or whatever, including organisations like, for example, the Cameron Highlanders of Ottawa, hmm. uh, the, the Duke of Edinburgh's own. 
So it's not all as as colonel of the uh, of the Grenadier Guards. I think we'll still see him in his scarlet tunic of the Grenadiers. Mm. We will still still possibly see him in uh, Lord High Admiral, the only one in the country of uh, in his uniform. I tell you what about it though, the thing that he has not achieved, he didn't achieve that excitement of actually being in the navy, of getting promoted. Mm of wondering whether you're going to get a command, etc., and having that full naval career. And he's talked about that. It's quite interesting. It's something missing. But, you know, we were in 1953. Queen became queen. He turned around and said, I'm an amoeba. I'm an amoeba. There's nothing for me to do. Michael he's Clark, done quite a lot. Michael Clark, you, you met him, haven't you? He wasn't an amoeba when you met him, I presume. No, I, I had the privilege of staying overnight one time at uh, Windsor with uh, about half a dozen others, and the Queen and, and the Duke were there. And the Duke was tremendous. Uh, he, he he really took the lead. The Queen had a bit of a cold. She was a little bit subdued. And he took the lead. He was lively. He was extremely funny. Uh, he gave us a tour. Well, we went on a tour around uh, the private rooms of Windsor and the library, and, and he pointed things out. And he in, was, what, all what the time he was... what capacity were you there, by the way? Just, uh, just as Director of Rusi. Um, right. And for a, you know for a series of chats. And he was he was fabulous. Uh, and the, the, the library, the, the staff, they laid out material that related to Queen Victoria and Rusi in the 19th century. And he was pretty well familiar with it all. He'd obviously done his preparation. I was mm. very, very impressed with his his engagement, but also his great sense of humour. He's, he's a good host, no question. Just briefly, did you, did you talk shop at all with him in terms of uh, what you, do, you were doing at the time? Uh, no, only in the sense that we were talking about the importance of understanding military conflict. And he, he was very good on that actually uh, which we, we chatted a little bit about that but we didn't talk about current politics that would have been um, that would have broken the, broken the mood of course uh, I'm glad you had a good night anyway that's all we have time for today tell us what you think you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP never miss an episode you can subscribe to the show as a podcast just search online for BFBS SITREP I'll be back the same time next week thanks for listening bye bye for now The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.